I want to uh, tell you guys that uh, something coming up, we have been, uh, we've wanted uh, for some time to do a baptism service. Our problem was we didn't have a baptistry, which that makes it hard to do a baptism service. Somebody in the congregation uh, graciously donated money so that we could uh, have a baptistry. So we have one now, and we're going to have a baptism on September the 18th after the service. Now, if you would like to be baptized, if you have come to a place where you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, you have never been baptized before, after the service, there's also a table out there that says baptism, and if you'd like to know more about it, or if you'd just like to sign up to be baptized, please stop by, and uh, we'll get your name down, and we'll include you in that baptism service. It's going to be a great time, so please do that, okay? I want to welcome those of you who are joining us uh, through the City Church app. Wherever you are in the world, uh, when you listen to this, we want you to know that we're glad that you're listening. When I first visited Evansville, it was about five years ago now, I was shocked at how many times I heard a certain F word used in my presence. Believe it or not, in 27 years of living in my previous home in Dallas, no one had ever used that word in my presence, not once. And yet within the first 24 hours of being here, I'll bet I heard this word six different times by the people that I was meeting with. Frugal, they would say. We are frugal. We value frugality, they would say. And they just kept saying, some of you guys seem surprised. What, what, what were you thinking? They just kept saying that we value frugality. And I, and I have to tell you, it wasn't that I didn't know that word. I did. I, it's a great word, and it's, it's a great value, frugality. It really is. In fact, uh, it's, it's refreshing in many ways. It was just that for the last 27 years, I had lived in a city that was, in every sense, the opposite of frugal. Dallas was big, proud, showy, glitzy, extravagant, and ostentatious in everything it does. People who can afford it buy huge, extravagant homes and drive expensive cars that shout, we're wealthy, and people who can't afford it buy huge, extravagant homes and drive expensive cars that shout, we wish we were wealthy, but we're just in deep debt. (laughs) Dallas is the home of the Dallas Cowboys, who once had the audacity to call themselves America's team. It is the home of Jerry Jones and his football stadium, which is affectionately known in Dallas as Jerry World. Even the churches in Dallas are big. One church there has over 20,000 people in it, and I kid you not, it has a chef on their staff and a restaurant with a private dining area for those who make reservations after church. So that's where I had been for 27 years. On the other hand, for example, the city of Evansville decided to put a sign between my home in Newburgh and here that says, Welcome to Evansville. But it was like they didn't want to be boastful or ostentatious, so they put a sign so frugally small that you have to take a picture of it with your phone as you drive by so that you can enlarge it later and read what the sign says. Like, welcome to, oh, that's really nice. They wanted to welcome us to Evansville. Frugal is a, it's a good word. It really is. And it's a great value. It's a hard-working, common-sense Midwestern value. In fact, it's a biblical value. That's, I think that's obvious, isn't it? Unless. Well, I want to look at this passage in Mark chapter 14, and we'll come back to the unless in just a moment. If you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in it to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14 and uh, verse 1. We're in the last week 
of Jesus' life. And for three and a half years, Jesus has taught and has trained a group of 12 hand-picked men that he has invited into every area of his life in order to teach them and to train them to carry on the revolution uh, that he has begun. He has revealed to them that he is the Messiah that Israel has been expecting. They understand that by now. But what they don't seem to really grasp is that he has not come to fulfill Israel's nationalistic political agenda to restore it to the sovereign world power that it once was. He's not going to overthrow, uh, uh, he's not going to militarily overthrow Israel's occupying force, Rome. Instead, he's going to overthrow evil by dying on a Roman cross. And this is something that to this point his disciples, no matter how many times he says it, they just don't seem to get their head around. But this reality is going to be driven home more clearly here in this passage in Mark chapter 14. So let's let's read, if you will, let's read from verse 1, and we're going to to read all the way through uh, verse 11. I was told a few minutes ago, uh, one of the guys from the back came up and told me that the computer crashed back there, so they don't have the verses or anything I'm going to say up on the screen today. I'll read these verses to you, uh, and I'll do my best to keep you, uh, come, keep you along with me throughout this talk, even though we don't have the, uh, the, screen, uh, the screens working up there today. Now the Passover, this is verse 1, now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, recalling, uh, excuse me, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar She poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this, and they promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him Jesus over. Now, uh, before I get to the things I want to focus on, I just want to make two quick observations I really want you to see here. All of the people who are screwing up in this passage are men. The religious leaders, they want to kill Jesus. Judas, he betrays Jesus. The others present, we know from the other gospels, this, this story, this account is recorded in all four of the gospels. Uh, the others that are present there that get indignant about this perfume, well, they're the rest of the disciples. The only one in this passage whom Jesus commends is a woman. Now, here's why that's notable. Any of you remember the Barbara Mandrell song uh, from a long time ago called I Was Country Before Country Was Cool? Anybody remember that? Raise your hands. Okay. You don't need to be embarrassed about that. You can raise your hands. Uh, 
She's, I was country before I was country, before country was cool. Jesus, I want you to understand something, ladies. Jesus was a feminist before feminism was cool. This is a reminder of how socially subversive the gospel is. Culturally, women were the lowest rung of society. Here in this passage, sandwiched between three groups of men who are all clearly wrong, Jesus elevates the dignity of this woman long before it was trendy to do so. And he does it by pointing her out. He does it by caring about what she did. And he does it by memorializing her in the New Testament for all of eternity. And as I said a moment ago, this was so important to Jesus that the Spirit of God inspired all four of the gospel writers to include this woman's account in the New Testament. It's also notable because, and I want you to understand this, if the accounts of Jesus are an elaborate hoax, as some people think they are, I want you to understand that Jesus' movement would have never gotten off the ground using a woman to support their deception. The fact that Mark does use this story of a woman speaks either to the truth of Jesus' movement or to the ignorance of the four gospel writers who included this story. But here's the question. If they were so ignorant, how is Jesus' movement still around over 2,000 years later? I want you to understand that Jesus was a feminist before feminism was cool. Now, here's what I want to focus on today. Here's really what I want to zoom in on. Mark wants us to see the contrast between these religious leaders and their hatred of Jesus at the very beginning of the passage. We see that. And uh, Judas' betrayal of Jesus at the very end of the passage. He wants us to see the contrast between those two and then this woman in the middle of the story. So I want to focus in for a few moments on this woman's actions. And I want you to see that she does three things in this passage. She does a wasteful thing, she does a beautiful thing, and she does a prophetic thing. Those are the three pegs that I want to hang my comments on today. She does a wasteful thing, she does a beautiful thing, and she does a prophetic thing. I want to show you what I mean, starting with a wasteful thing. When verse 3 tells us that Jesus was reclining at the table of Simon the leper, it's telling us that Jesus is at a dinner party. Now, we don't know who Simon the leper was. His name is never mentioned in any other uh, of the Gospels. Presumably, he was uh, a man who Jesus uh, had uh, healed of leprosy, which was, you know, as you guys know, just a, a horrible disease. And perhaps as a token of his appreciation, he wanted to throw a party for Jesus. Now, we don't know this. We're just kind of, we're just kind of uh, uh, speculating about this, but that seems kind of reasonable. The, um, uh, the act of anointing someone uh, over the head was a common custom in the ancient Middle East. It was a sign of honor and respect. When someone came to your home, this was something that you did. But I want you to notice what the disciples think about what this woman has done. Two words that I want you to notice and underline if you have a Bible in front of you. The first is the word indignantly. They responded to her indignantly. It's a Greek word which means to be angered about something that is unjust or wrong. The other word is the word waste. I want you to pay attention to that, the word waste. They believe that this woman has done something unjust by this act of pouring this perfume on Jesus' head. Uh, They believe that she's done something wrong, not just stupid, not just impulsive, but they believe that she has done something wrong. 
And to get a sense of why they're so angry, look at verse 5, if you have a Bible. The disciples, and we know from the other gospel accounts that it's particularly Judas, they're all caught up in the value of this perfume. It could have been sold for, look at it, they say it, it could have been sold for a year's, a year's wages. So think about this for just a moment. I googled this. The Census Bureau estimated that the annual median household income in America in 2015, they estimated it to be $54,462. And she just dumps that over Jesus' head all at one time. That's an expensive bottle of perfume. Would you agree? Now let's imagine you, a frugal Midwesterner, are standing there watching this. Oh, even, even better. Let's do this. Let's imagine that you are a frugal German Midwesterner. <laughs> and you're at this dinner party watching. After we bought this building from the church before, it was primarily a German church, uh, we were looking through all the cabinets back in the kitchen. And, and in one of the drawers in the kitchen, there was just this one drawer. It was just full of like random plastic lids. I mean, there were so many you couldn't even count them, you know, like things that you would buy in a grocery store, like, you know, plastic lid, not the whole, not the tub, but the lid to like butter or cream cheese or something like that. You know, there were just hundreds of these. And I was like, why would they have kept these? And one of the ladies on our leadership team said they were German. They keep everything. (laughs) So you're a frugal German Midwesterner and you're at this dinner party and you watch this woman pouring a $55,000 bottle of perfume over Jesus' head. What are you thinking? What are you thinking? Aren't you thinking the same thing that the disciples were thinking? Okay, hey, listen, like, okay, lady, a, a spray, you know, a spray, uh, two sprays. I mean, that, that would have been fine. The whole bottle, though, that's too much. That's irrational. That's way too extravagant. We could have cashed that in, and we could have used it to feed the poor. And I suspect that you would have been very confident that Jesus would have been in complete agreement with you, just as the disciples. They're confident of the fact that Jesus is in agreement with them. So they rebuke this woman harshly. Isn't that where you would have been? But surprise, surprise. In this case, Jesus doesn't land on the side of frugality. Which leads me to to the next thing that I want to say, okay? The disciples think that this woman has done a wasteful thing. But in verse 6, Jesus says that what she has done is not wasteful, but that it is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Does that that surprise you? That he says, you know, just take this $55,000 jar of perfume. First of all, he doesn't doesn't scold her for having a $55,000 jar of perfume. But then he says, yeah, it's cool. Take that and just all in, you know, forget the poor. All in one, uh, all in one moment, just pour that over my head. That's, that's cool with me. It's a, he, says, he says that's a beautiful thing. In fact, he goes further, uh, doesn't he? And he says in verse 7, he says, he says, look, the poor are always going to be around. 
And then in the last part of the sentence, he says, you can help them anytime that you want. Now, I want you to understand something. He's not being crass. This isn't intended to encourage people to be neglectful of the poor. Jesus has often spoken through this gospel, through other gospels, uh, about his concern for the poor. But what he is saying is, he's saying, look, in a fallen world, there are always going to be poor around. And he says, he says, look, there are plenty of resources to help the poor. The ability to care for and feed the poor does not depend upon this one bottle of perfume, no matter how expensive it is. Like, if you guys get serious about taking care of the poor, this won't matter. Y'all have enough resources, you can take care of the poor. And then he hints at what's about to come for him. He says, you won't always have me around. Kind of sounds like Richard Nixon back in the late 60s. You won't always have me around to kick around. Uh, That's not what Jesus, he's saying, but he is, he's hinting at what's to come. He says, you won't always have me around. Now, what's going on here? Well, first notice that, I want you to notice that this was not an impulsive act on this woman's part. This wasn't her home. It was Simon the leper's home. She didn't, she didn't run, she didn't just see Jesus and then maybe he says something and she's like caught up in the moment and she runs back to her bedroom and she grabs this bottle of perfume on a whim. She didn't do this. That's not what she did. She thought about this. She brought this perfume from her own home. I don't know, maybe it's something, somebody suggested this past week that maybe it was something that was handed down to her uh, from uh, people uh, from her family, you know, many generations back to add to her value that she brought to the marriage. Maybe that was the case. Maybe it was something she could afford. I, I, I don't really know. But this is something that she had planned. This is something that she wanted to do. And Jesus doesn't get angry about it. In fact, he, he says, this is a beautiful thing. Why? Uh, a friend of mine was telling me about a time when he was young uh, that he'd done some chores for his father and his, his father paid him for these chores. You know, I guess it was part of his allowance. I, I don't know what it was. And as soon as his father paid him, my friend rode uh, his bike downtown and he, he went, to a little, <laughs> went to a little jewelry store there in downtown. It was a really small town. There was just like one little jewelry store there in the small town. And, and he goes in there and he wants to use this money on his dad. And, and, and the only thing he can find is, is a watch for his dad. It was a cheap watch, but uh, he said, but, but uh, it, it was a watch. He, he just didn't have much money to spend, but it was all the money that he had in the world. And he couldn't wait to get back home and give it to his dad because he was so, he just wanted his dad to know how much he loved him. But when he got back home, his father was angry with him for spending the money on that watch. I don't need a watch, his father said. You should have saved the money. You need to learn how to handle money because money doesn't just grow on trees, his father said. Now, I want you to understand, my friend wasn't, you know, he wasn't telling me the story to beat his dad up about it in any way, shape, or form. He, he you know, he said, you know, he made the comment, he said, you know, like, my dad was young. I mean, I know what that's like. He was trying to raise a kid. He didn't know how to raise a kid. He was young. He was just, you know, he was just being practical. He was being reasonable. He was trying to teach me the value of money. One might even argue he was trying to teach him the principle of frugality, you know, all of which were important lessons, to be sure. 
But why doesn't Jesus do that here? Why doesn't he... Why doesn't he say those kind of things to this woman? Why doesn't he give her a lesson on how to handle money? How to handle financial resources? Why didn't he say, look, you know, just like the disciples said, you know how much money that this could have been sold for so that we could feed the poor? Why doesn't he do that? The reason that Jesus doesn't do that is because he sees this for what it is. It's an act of love. And when you love someone... You do crazy, irrational, extravagant, and yeah, even wasteful things for them sometimes, don't you? Jonathan Edwards uh, was a philosopher and pastor. He was widely regarded as the greatest theological mind in the history of America. In fact, the first great awakening broke out in in his church. And in his book, Religious Affections, which was written in 1746, he argues That when a person really understands the gospel, when you really get all that God has done for you in Christ, he says it moves you in such a way that you begin to obey God, not just out of guilt, not just out of duty, not just out of fear, not so that you can be prideful and, 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 and look down your nose at other people who haven't done what you've done. Not just because you're supposed to obey, but when you really understand the gospel, you begin to obey because the gospel has penetrated you at such a deep love level that it has changed what you love and that it has changed what you hate. It changes what you value, which is exactly what has happened to this woman. She has watched Jesus. She has listened to Jesus. She has been affected by Jesus. She understands who he is. She understands what he's going to do on the cross. And out of love for him, she takes the thing that perhaps prior to Jesus, she valued more than anything in the world. I don't know. And she worships Jesus with it. Recognizing that he is worth far more than even the most expensive perfume in the world. And Jesus sees it for what it is. It's an act of extravagant, irrational, wasteful, beautiful love. Now, I know this is a hard sell, what I'm going to say to you here in just a moment, because I'm speaking in a, in a church full of Midwest, Midwestern people. But here it is. Here it goes. Frugality is a good biblical value. We're on the same page there, right? It's a good biblical value unless it gets in the way of expressing your love for Jesus. Frugality is a good biblical value unless it gets in the way of expressing your love for Jesus. Now, I know, here's what some of you are thinking in your head right now. You think I'm talking about money. I'm not talking about money necessarily. You see, it's like anything else. Frugality is a good thing, but if you aren't careful, it can become an ultimate thing and it can take over your entire life and your entire soul. And you become frugal, not just with your money, but you become frugal with everything. You become frugal with your words, with your verbal expressions of love to other people. You become uh, frugal with your physical signs of affection. You become frugal with the relational risks that you are willing to take. You become frugal even with your worship. 
Frugality is a good biblical value unless it gets in the way of expressing your love for Jesus. When was the last time that you did something irrational, extravagant, wasteful to show your love for Jesus? Not to show it to anybody else. Not because you care about what anybody else thinks, but because you just want to do it for Jesus. When did your love for Jesus last so overwhelm you that you had to do something irrational, illogical, inexplicable for him? When? Because you see, some people would say, look, you know, okay, Christianity, oh, that's a good thing. It's good for everybody to get a little bit of religion. But don't go crazy with it. Jesus includes this story in this passage of scripture to say, go crazy with it. Don't play around with it. Don't live at the margins. Go crazy with this. When was the last time you did something like that? Did you get a good look at Amanda Schmidt a few moments ago? Did you get a good look at her? To to me, she looks like the last person in the world who would care about strippers. There's no rational reason she should be willing to spend time and money and energy ministering to strippers. On the surface, it seems absolutely crazy. But that's the kind of thing that happens when you understand the gospel. You get that the difference between you and a stripper is only the nature of the sin, not the reality of the sin. And that the cross is where you both need to bow equally low. When was the last time that you did something irrational, illogical, inexplicable, extravagant, wasteful? Just out of love for Jesus. When? I don't know. You know, maybe, maybe for you, like you've got a, everybody that you know would say, man, you got a great paying job. Don't screw that up. But they're asking you to do something that you know is wrong. And like everything about you wants to say, you know, just comply. It's a great paying job. I don't want to mess up the security I have. I got a wife. I got kids, man. I got mouths to feed. What if you took a stand? Took a risk. It's irrational. It's illogical. It might even be wasteful. Some people would say, what a waste. Don't do that. You might lose your job. And let's say you take a stand and you lose your job. You'd be willing to do that just to show your love for Jesus. Maybe you've been in a job like that for a long time and it's been just gnawing at you. Maybe that's what, maybe that's what you're being called to do right now. Maybe it means, you know, maybe there's somebody in your world that it's like, you know, you're a really shy person and you don't like to do this, but, but like there's somebody in your room that you just, like it feels like God is calling you to go speak to them, to just walk across a room and speak to someone about Jesus. And that's really hard for you, but you're willing to say, you know, look, I'm going to take a risk, Jesus, for you. This is, makes no sense for me to do this, but I'm going to do it because just, I just want to say, I love you, Jesus. Maybe it looks like that. I don't know. When was the last time that you did something like that? Frugality is a good biblical value unless it gets in the way of expressing your love for Jesus. This woman did a wasteful thing in the eyes of the disciples. She did a beautiful thing in Jesus' eyes. And finally, she did a prophetic thing. This is what Jesus is saying in verse 8. He says, she did what she could. 
She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Part of Jewish custom was that when a person was being uh, set apart or consecrated for a holy purpose, you would anoint them with oil or perfume. What the 12 men who had followed Jesus for three and a half years still didn't seem to understand, this woman understand very well. She understood very well. And so in a prophetic act, she anoints him for the holy purpose for which he came to earth, to die on a cross for the sins of humanity. She gets that. And so she, she prepares him for burial. She anoints him for what he's going to do on that cross. The special holy purpose for which he is here. And she anoints him in this beautiful, wasteful, prophetic act of love. And this drives Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. Now, what is it about this that drives him to to do this? Well, we know from the other gospels that Judas was the disciple that was most indignant about this. And the reason was, is that he had been stealing from the till, you know, like whatever people gave to support the ministry of Jesus and the disciples. Judas was in charge of it, and Judas was stealing from the till. If this woman would have just donated this perfume to the cause, Judas would have reaped some of the profits from the sale. But I don't think that's the major thing. I think there's something else that drives Judas in this moment to betray Jesus. I think when Judas said, that this is a beautiful thing that this woman has done and it's going to be memorialized for all of eternity as people preach the gospel. I think Judas suddenly realized that there was no benefit for him at all in following Jesus. He suddenly realized that Jesus didn't plan on setting up a political kingdom in which Judas would presumably have a powerful office near the money, of course. And once there was no benefit to Judas politically, he decided to cut his losses and he decided that he would get what he could out of it. And what's so ironic about this is that Judas, who was so upset about spilling an expensive bottle of perfume, was willing for just 30 pieces of silver to spill the precious blood of Jesus, which was of inestimable value. You understand what was so prophetic about what this woman did? She breaks this alabaster jar. On the cross, Jesus' body was broken like that alabaster jar of perfume. She pours it out over Jesus' head. Jesus' blood was poured out without reservation, just like that perfume. The smell of the perfume, I mean, it just, it's, a, it's a fragrant aroma all over the house. Jesus' extravagant act of love as he died on a Roman cross for my sins and for yours, became a fragrant aroma for the whole world to enjoy because his death paid for the penalty of human sin. Jesus' life was of infinite value, yet he allowed it to be taken from him out of love for you and out of love for me. He lived the life that you and I could never live. He died the death that you and I deserve to die because there was no other sacrifice that could pay for your sins. No other sacrifice. You understand that? No other sacrifice. Like There was no code that you could follow. There was no set of rules that you could follow. There was, there was no sacrifice other than the blood of Jesus. Nobody else that you could follow. No other sacrifice than the blood of Jesus that could pay for your sins. 
If you've never done something like extravagant, irrational, wasteful, maybe, for Jesus, it's a little hard for you to swallow what I'm going to say here to you today. But it's likely that you don't really understand the gospel. Now, you know, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you don't believe the gospel. And I'm not, also not saying that you're not saved. That, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that it, do, it means that you don't really understand it. So many people believe that Christianity is about following rules and about obeying in order to get God's approval, to merit his blessing, his, to, to get his salvation, to, 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 to earn his love in some way. And if that's the way that you were taught to think about Christianity, I'm going to tell you the dominant feelings, I know this, the dominant feelings that you feel about Jesus are things like fear and guilt and shame. But as Jonathan Edwards pointed out in his book, as I was talking about a moment ago, fear and guilt and shame don't motivate extravagant, irrational, wasteful, and beautiful acts of love. They just don't. Those things can motivate you to follow rules. They can motivate you to dutifully obey. But they cannot motivate you to do something like the woman in this story does. The gospel isn't about a relationship to a set of laws. It's, the gospel isn't instruction. The gospel is news about a person who did something in the past that you had nothing to do with at the time, who so loved you that he died for you. Some of you have never heard this gospel. If you've never heard this gospel, believe today. Don't wait. Believe today. Today, don't wait. Believe today. In the privacy of your seat, in the privacy of your heart, believe today. Some of you have heard this gospel and you have believed in it, but ever since the moment that you believed, your entire relationship with God has been based upon your performance. And that destroys love. It just crushes love. You need to go back to the cross of Christ And you need to breathe in the fragrant aroma of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you need to let that that aroma so overwhelm you to the point that you can't help but do something extravagant, irrational, and wasteful out of love for Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? Would you just take a moment and, and just think right now, just in the privacy of your seat, if you have never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, would you just now, in the privacy of, of your seat, would you acknowledge to the Lord Jesus that you know that you're a sinner, that he is the only sacrifice acceptable for your sins, and that you believe in him today as your Savior, and as your Lord. If you have believed in the gospel, but you sense that your entire life has become about like a list of to-dos and a list of things not to do and stuff, and that love is not something that you feel right now, would you ask him to overwhelm you with a sense of love? Would you go back to the cross this morning? 
And as you just sit and think for just a moment, would you ask the Lord, what is there that I could do for you? What, what's, what's something extravagant and wasteful and beautiful that I could do for you? Because only, like only love, only love motivates that kind of action. Lord Jesus, today would you would you move us to the level of our affections, changing what we love, changing what we hate, and move us to do something just so extravagant and irrational that it can only be explained by a supernatural and profound love for you, Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.